0: Welcome back to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. You are listening to one of a series of lectures given by Caitlin Carl during our summer study through the Book of Mark. For Caitlin's lecture slides and additional study resources for the Book of Mark, please visit DaytonWomenInTheWord.com slash mark resources. ladies. Well, we are going to get started. So find a seat. We've got, as usual, a lot to cover tonight. Um, But before we get started, a couple of announcements. Um, So, the Dayton Women in the Word shop will be open tonight after lecture and next week um, right outside of the sanctuary, so make sure that you stop by and see Natalie and get a tote or a mug. Um, This church that so graciously hosts um, our study, Keystone Church, they are hosting Project Dream Dress Drive. So if you have a formal dress that has been sitting in your closet for years and years and will probably never be worn again, um, please bring it and donate it to this outreach project sometime during the next week. Not this Thursday, but next Thursday um, at 6.30 at Faith Christian Fellowship in Beaver Creek. We would like to invite all women, men, and children to come and celebrate God's faithfulness with us for five years of summer study at this night of worship. Yes, we're excited. And then lastly, um, every summer after study is over, we send out a survey. And so we would really appreciate if you would provide us with your feedback. This really helps us to know um, what we're doing well, what we could maybe tweak a little bit to make this more helpful for you. We do this um, for the glory of God, but for you. And so if you, um, the more feedback that you give us, the better um, that we can serve you. So that will come out this Friday and the survey will close August 5th. So if you could fill that out for us sometime, in that time period, we would really appreciate it. All right, so let's open in prayer. Lord God, this is a heavy passage that we're gonna look at tonight, and so I pray that you would um, show us your word in new light. This is a passage many of us have read many, many times, Um, But I pray that we would not gloss over it, but would see what you have to teach us anew tonight, and that we would walk out of here with hearts changed and minds transformed um, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's start with our memory verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 10, or, oh my gosh, I did that too, again. (laughs) Mark 10, 45. (laughs) I really want us to be studying John, I guess, I don't know. Okay. So... Let's start with a quick review. Last week we talked about how these final six chapters of Mark take place over the final week of Jesus's life. So in chapters 11 to 13, last Monday, we started on Sunday and this is often known as Palm Sunday as Jesus entered Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey fulfilling the messianic prophecy. And then on Monday, he cursed the fig tree, he cleansed the temple. And on Tuesday, he was questioned by the religious leaders, and then he asked them a question of his own. Finally, we looked at the Olivet Discourse, which also took place on Tuesday, and covered Jesus's foretelling of the signs of the destruction of the temple and the end of the age and his second coming. So this week, we're gonna start on Wednesday with the chief priests and the scribes plotting to kill Jesus and then Judas agreeing to betray him. And then on Thursday, we'll see Jesus and the disciples prepare for and observe the Passover feast, and Jesus will foretell of his betrayal and predict that, Je- that Peter will deny him. And moving into Friday, we'll see Jesus and his disciples move to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas will carry out his betrayal, and Jesus will be arrested, tried, crucified, and buried. Friday is also when Jesus' prediction of Peter's denials comes true. And then Saturday, which we don't actually see in our text, is the Jewish Sabbath. So nothing much is happening on this day other than the Sabbath observance. And we see guards set over the tomb in which Jesus' lifeless body lays to make sure that the disciples don't steal it. So here we go. Wednesday. Chapter 14 begins a couple of days before Passover, and Mark lets us know that the chief priests and the scribes are actively seeking how to arrest and kill Jesus by stealth. They don't want to do it during the feast because that might cause an uproar from the people. Just as we saw last week, their main concern, their main fear is what the people will do and think. And it's this fear that drives their actions in the coming days. Jumping down a little bit in the text to verse 10, which is still taking place on Wednesday, we read that conveniently for the chief priests and scribes, one of Jesus's own disciples approaches them and offers to betray Jesus to them. Of course, these religious leaders are glad and they promise to pay Judas for his services. And from this point on, Judas is looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, In between these two brief accounts is a story that likely happened a few days beforehand. In verse three, Mark transports us back to the preceding Saturday when Jesus is at Bethany. Now this account is a source of a lot of debate. Who is Simon the leper? Who was in this house? Who is the woman? Did she pour it on his head or on his feet? There's a lot of questions, but tonight we're going to walk verse by verse through Mark's text and we're gonna focus on what this gospel writer has to say about this event. So Jesus is at Bethany in the house of someone known as Simon the leper. And if you'll remember, we talked earlier this summer about the very poor status of lepers in those days. They were unclean, and they weren't permitted to live within the bounds of society, but were relegated to living outside of the city, wearing bells around their necks and exclaiming, unclean, wherever they went. In light of how lepers were regarded and the fact that it says Jesus was in Simon the leper's house, it's highly likely that Simon was a leper who had been healed by Jesus at some previous time, and thus was now back living in a home, enjoying the benefits of living within society's bounds. And so Jesus is in Bethany. He's in this house of a used-to-be leper whom he has healed, and he's reclining at table. And here's a rough picture of what that might have looked like. This was a customary way to dine for a formal dinner and it is while Jesus is reclining in this way that a woman suddenly enters the story and she's holding a jar filled with a very costly ointment which she proceeds to break and pour over Jesus. And instantly some of those present become indignant saying to themselves that the ointment had been wasted for it could have been sold for almost one year's wages and then that money could have been given to the poor and they scold the woman for her extravagant act. Imagine for a moment how this woman might have felt. She has just expressed her overwhelming love for Jesus in a very public and very visible way, something that probably required her to muster up great courage, and now she hears nothing but angry voices all around her. But... Amidst the din of accusations, Jesus' voice comes to this woman's defense, and he says, "'Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial.'" It's unlikely that this woman knew the full extent of her actions— She certainly knew its extravagance, and she probably had planned its execution and prepared beforehand this lavish display of love for Jesus. But he says that her act of incredible love for him, the Christ, the Messiah, turned out to be so much more than her own personal expression of adoration. She was anointing his body for his rapidly approaching burial. And this, we read, is a beautiful thing. And because of her action, Jesus says that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Her story becomes part of his story because she gave everything she had, what was likely a family heirloom, perhaps even an inheritance for her. Perhaps she somehow sensed that her time to express her love for Jesus was short, and she was willing to risk her entire future to make sure that she could communicate her great love for him. So are we that in love with Jesus? Are we willing to risk it all for the sake of loving him and to put our very futures on the line to lavishly love our Savior? And you might be wondering, why does Mark insert this story that happened a few days ago into the middle of these two events from Wednesday? Perhaps it's to paint a stark contrast between this unnamed woman and the chief priests and scribes and Judas. The chief priests and scribes, they spend time plotting how to stealthily arrest and kill Jesus, while this woman spent time planning how to publicly and overtly display her affection for the Christ. This unnamed woman poured the equivalent of a year's wages over the head of her king and Judas doesn't give a second thought to betraying his close companion for the last three years for the equivalent of a few months' pay. Yes, Judas was met with gladness and the woman with scorn, but that is a risk we must be ready and willing to take for the sake of loving Jesus. Loving Jesus doesn't always look sensible in the world's eyes. Following Jesus' commands will often invite ridicule from observers. In fact, it seems to be this woman's extravagant love for Jesus that pushes Judas over the edge, driving him into the waiting arms of the religious leaders. But in loving Jesus, we become a part of his story. And not just a part of his story, but Romans 8 tells us that we become fellow heirs with him. So, are we willing tonight to endure the ridicule of the world to share in Christ's inheritance? Are we willing to make ourselves look like fools to follow our Savior King? Or are we going to just keep caring more about what others think and censoring our love in order to avoid scorn? Well, in verse 12, we move on to Thursday, um, which we read is the first day of unleavened bread, the day when the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. The meal was to be eaten within the walls of the city of Jerusalem, and having come from Galilee, Jesus and his disciples didn't have a place within the city to partake this important meal together. Since the meal was to be eaten that very night, and it required quite a bit of preparation, it's probably with a sense of urgency that Jesus' disciples ask him where they're supposed to go and get this elaborate meal prepared, and then eat it. And Jesus' answer is very reminiscent of the conversation that he had with his disciples when they first came into Jerusalem a few days ago, when he sent two of his disciples to find the donkey's colt. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm a big fan of shows and movies that are about espionage. I find spies absolutely fascinating. I think if I didn't have a family, I might be a spy. Um, But what Jesus instructs his disciples to do here feels like an undercover mission. He says, go into the city and you'll be met by a man with a water jar on his head. And this is odd, because men don't usually carry water jars on their head. This is a woman's job. But when you meet him, follow him. And wherever he enters, speak these secret code words to the master of that house, and he'll show you everything you need. It all is very prearranged, and it probably is a bit covert, because Jesus' head has a price on it. In John 11, we read that the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should let them know so that they might arrest him. And of course, everything happens exactly as Jesus said it would. And the disciples make the appropriate preparations for the Passover feast. When it was evening, meaning time for the feast to begin, Jesus came to the prepared table with the apostles. And again, we read that they assume this reclining position at the table. And it's as they are partaking in this commemorative feast together that Jesus says, "Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me." Can you imagine the shock wave that pulsed through that room as he uttered those words, and how Judas's heart probably sank to the bottom of his stomach knowing that Jesus was speaking about him? One after another they ask him, "Is it me?" is it me? And he responds, it's one of the 12, one who is dipping the bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. In the first half of verse 21, Jesus's statement affirms God's sovereignty. The son of man goes as it was written of him. And in the second half of the verse, he acknowledges man's responsibility for his own actions. Jesus knew that he was to be delivered over to death and suffering. That had long been foretold of the Messiah, but that didn't absolve Judas of his part in the matter. It is both true that God is sovereign and man is responsible. Where the two meet and how exactly that works, I do not claim to completely understand. But I do know that like Judas, we cannot use God's sovereignty as an excuse for our sin and poor choices. And it's after this tense moment passes, though I'm sure that Jesus' words are still echoing in the ears of his disciples, that he takes the opportunity to give new symbolism to this meal that the disciples had probably observed for their entire lives. And though these words were new and probably shocking to the disciples, they're ones that many of us, if we've been around the church for a while, have likely heard many, many times. So many times, in fact, that I think we can sometimes brush past them without much thought. But hear them anew tonight. As Jesus takes the bread, he blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to the disciples, saying, Take, this is my body. Just as this bread is now given to you, so too will my body soon be given for you. Remember earlier this summer, back in session four, when Jesus fed the 5,000 and then soon after the 4,000, he used this same pattern of actions when he fed those thousands of people. He took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it. He was giving those multitudes a foretaste of this meal that the disciples are now eating and that believers still eat today. Jesus is the bread of life. In John 6, 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Take this is my body. And then he takes a cup. He gives thanks, gives it to them, and they all drink it. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Just as this wine now flows, so too will my blood soon flow. In a matter of mere hours after speaking these words, Jesus's blood will flow from his side. And just a few hours before this meal, the blood of a lamb flowed as the disciples slaughtered it and prepared it for this Passover meal that they are now consuming. In Egypt, the Israelites killed a lamb and spread its blood over their doorposts. And when God saw that sign, when he saw the blood covering that house, he passed over and did not bring death into it. And now, as they recline around the table, remembering that very night so many years ago in Egypt, the eternal Lamb of God is sitting in their midst. And very soon, it will be His blood that covers, His blood that saves us from death, His blood which will mark us as children of God. And just as the sacrifice of that first Passover lamb brought about freedom from the Egyptians, this sacrifice of the eternal Passover lamb brings about freedom from sin. Now when the Egyptians let the Israelites go, wouldn't it have been absurd for them to stay behind? God, I know you've just done all these amazing things and now we're free to go, but I think we'll actually stay. This is familiar, it's comfortable, and I I think we're just going to stay here. If you are a believer, you say the same thing to God every time that you choose to remain in your sin. Jesus has freed you. He has done what we could never do, and He has broken the power of sin so that we can go free. And yet, so often, we choose to stay. We choose slavery and bondage when the door of the jail has been flung open wide. Why? Because it's familiar and it's comfortable and it's easier. But sisters, Jesus' blood did not flow so that we could remain slaves. Jesus did what was hard, the hardest, really. He went to the cross and he died on our behalf so that we could be free. So are we living in that freedom tonight or are we living in bondage to our sin? Where are you choosing to stay put because it's familiar And comfortable and cutting it off will be painful and messy and hard. Take hold of your freedom in Christ tonight. Well after the group sings a hymn they head out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus drops another bomb on the disciples here as he tells them you will all fall away for it is written In Zechariah 13 verse 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Just a few hours ago, Jesus told them that one of them would betray him, and now he's telling them that they'll all fall away? Not me, says Peter, even if everyone else does, I won't. Well, good old Peter. Does anybody else relate to him? I've always identified with him. Um, He seems to vacillate between these huge moments of faith, like when he confesses Jesus as the Christ, and then these moments of huge failure. When he rebukes Jesus, like in chapter 8, or now, when he overestimates his own power over his sin nature, not to mention essentially calling Jesus a liar. Jesus tries again, getting specific this time with exactly when Peter will fall away, but Peter insists all the more, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples chime in. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we can make in following the Lord is to overestimate our power over sin. It is in that place, when we think we've got it all together, that we are most vulnerable to the attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is only through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that we have any hope at all against sin, and we must not lose sight of that. We must not let our guard down and think ourselves self-sufficient, able to stand alone. Rather, we must continually rely on the power of God to bring about protection from and victory over sin. Well, it's probably about midnight at this point, so we're moving into Friday, and as the day changes over, Jesus and his disciples arrive in Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press, and it's a garden that's located somewhere on the Mount of Olives, and it's here that Jesus heads with his disciples for his final hours before his arrest. He asks his disciples, other than Peter, James, and John, to sit, probably near the entrance of the garden, while he goes and prays. And then he takes the three with him, and Jesus begins to be greatly distressed and troubled. He knows that his hour is soon approaching, and he knows exactly what is coming. He is not oblivious to the suffering that he is about to undergo and the increasing isolation that he will endure. And he is sorrowful, even to death. He tells the three, remain here and watch. And then he goes a little further within the garden to pray by himself. He's distressed, he's troubled, and he's sorrowful. And so he prays. Is that our first reaction when we're faced with these same emotions? And we see that Jesus himself is now the one falling on the ground before his father. And he pleads with him, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you, even what I am about to ask. Remove this cup from me. Find another way. Please don't ask me to do this. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And what an example our Savior has set for us. Pray boldly. For yes, all things are possible with God but also accept the father's perfect will, humbly bowing before him in submission and obedience. Three times he asks his father to remove this cup from him and after each time spent in grief fraught prayer, he returns to the three disciples, Peter, James and John, whom he asked to remain and watch and instead he finds them sleeping. The first time he says to them, could you not watch one hour? True, it's after midnight. It's been a long day, and they're tired. So to his previous request for them to remain here and watch, he adds, pray. Pray that you might not enter into temptation. I've just told you all that you are all going to fall away. Are you so confident in your own ability to overcome that you would sleep instead of pray? The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. You need to stay awake. You need to pray. The second time Jesus returns from praying and finds them sleeping, they don't even know how to answer him. And I'm guessing that they're embarrassed to have failed him again as he stands before them, drenched in bloody sweat, as Luke's gospel tells us, clearly in great distress, and yet they've been sleeping. Perhaps, as we often do, these men underestimate the importance and the power of prayer. They certainly don't have the same sense of urgency that Jesus does in this moment. And a third time he goes away and prays and comes to find them sleeping. But it's too late for them to keep watch now. Thinking back to chapter 13 and the Olivet Discourse, the disciples did not heed Jesus' warning to be alert, to stay awake, and now the hour has come and they're unprepared. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand, Jesus says. Let us be going away. Let us be running in the opposite direction of this riotous crowd that's coming directly towards us. No, let us be going straight to them, straight to my betrayer. It's probably about 3 a.m. at this time. And we see that again, Jesus finds himself surrounded by a crowd but this time they're not marveling at him and asking for healing. They're shaking swords and clubs and coming to seize him. Judas is leading them, and he has arranged to identify Jesus to the crowd by kissing him. Now remember that this was before the age of photography, television, newspapers, Facebook, so if you hadn't seen someone before, you didn't really know what they looked like. So even though it's likely that this crowd all knows who Jesus is, because his fame is wide at this point, they're not going to be able to identify him, especially not in the middle of the night. And so Jesus exclaims, Rabbi, and kisses Jesus. And seeing the signal, the crowd lays hands on him and seizes him. Seeing his Lord being grabbed, one of the disciples, John's gospel tells us it's Peter, draws his sword, and he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And most commentators agree that Peter was probably not aiming for his ear, that he was trying to kill him, but the servant was able to dodge quickly enough. Peter is ready to fight to defend his Lord and rescue him from the hands of this mob. He still cannot allow for the possibility of Jesus dying. But Jesus says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is a clash of kingdoms. The kingdom of this world is colliding with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of this world gets its way with power and force. Do as I say, or I will make you do it. Don't step out of line or you'll pay the price. I'm more powerful than you. I'm bigger than you. I have more money, influence, friends, status than you do, so I win. But Jesus has been telling us throughout this gospel that the kingdom of God is everything but. The first shall be last, and the last first. Be the servant of all love your neighbor as yourself. And here Jesus is the very embodiment of that heavenly kingdom as he walks right up to his betrayer, into his arrest. He doesn't struggle against his captors, and he calls them out on their unnecessary roughness. Perhaps they expected him to resist, to put up a fight, for they do not understand that this is the very thing that Jesus came to do. The kingdom of this world is based on victory by domination. And the crowd embodies that as they seize Jesus. The kingdom of God is based on victory by love. And Jesus embodies that as he willingly gives himself over to death on a cross. And now, just as predicted, the disciples all leave and flee. The messianic king who was to overthrow and conquer has just been captured, and they're not looking to be found following him right now. There seems to be the implication that if they had stayed awake and prayed, they might not have given into this temptation to fall away. But having given themselves over to sleep in the weakness of their flesh, Jesus is abandoned by his closest companions as he's led to the high priest. But before we see Jesus before the council, there's a streaker in our story. This account only occurs in Mark, and it's quick. It's two verses about a man who followed Jesus, and when seized, he leaves his coverings behind and runs away naked. Why in the world is this here? Honestly, no one really knows. There are basically two camps. The young man was either Mark, who wrote this gospel, or it wasn't. If it wasn't, we have no clue who it was. If it is Mark, then this certainly would have been an event that stuck with him, and it's not unreasonable to see why he might have written it into this account, a sort of I was there marker on his gospel. But whoever it was, this young man's naked flight and the disciples' quick departure stand in stark contrast to the Savior's willing submission to his captors. And moving into verse 43, it's probably about four in the morning, and the armed crowd brings Jesus before the high priest, and all the other Jewish leaders are there as well. And the council, which is what this gathering of all the Jewish leaders is called, they're seeking testimony against Jesus so that they can put him to death. But they're not having much luck. Even though they've already found Jesus guilty in their own minds, they likely want to be able to justify their decision to others, so they're looking for a legally sound reason to sentence him to death. This is supposed to be a neutral, unbiased group of men who hear and try cases equitably and justly. But it's clear here that they're not looking for justice. They're looking for a conviction at any cost and by any means. Many false witnesses come forward, but they can't even get their lies to match up. In the Mosaic Law, in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, God told the Israelites, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So if they were conducting this trial legally, then Jesus cannot be condemned to death because none of the witnesses' testimonies are in agreement but this is no fair trial. Seeing that the witness route isn't working, the high priest stands up, visibly agitated at this point, and directly questions Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But his intimidation doesn't work, and Jesus remains silent, fulfilling the prophet Isaiah's words from Isaiah 53 verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So the chief priest tries a different angle. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? This tactic was also against Jewish law, as you could not require a person standing trial to incriminate themselves. Nevertheless, Jesus replies, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Referencing Daniel's vision of the coming Redeemer from Daniel 7. Until this moment, Jesus has never outright said, I am the Christ, the Son of God. He has used many terms for himself that certainly implied his Messiahship and his deity, but never so explicitly as now. In trying to incriminate him, the high priest has given Jesus this opportunity to clearly reveal himself to the assembled Jewish leaders as the one they have long been awaiting. And they can either accept his identity in this moment as it is clearly revealed to them, or they convict him of blasphemy, of claiming for himself that which belongs only to God, which is punishable by death. And of course we know that they don't accept his identity even when it is so plainly set before them. Instead, the high priest tears his clothes, which is a symbol of extreme grief, which he is no doubt faking in this moment. And he says, what more do we need? You heard him. And the council all condemn him as deserving of death because of the blasphemous words that he has just spoken and they begin to spit on him, and they cover his face, and they hit him, and they tell him to prophesy about who has struck him. Why are they so adamant about Jesus dying, about silencing him? Because he's a threat to them. He's a threat to their lifestyle, to their position, their power, their social standing. And they couch their conviction under the accusation of blasphemy, but are they really concerned with protecting God's honor? or just with protecting themselves? And where are we trying to silence Jesus tonight? To put him to death because his message is a threat to us, to our lifestyle or our social standing or our comfort. Well, back in verse 54, Mark told us that Peter had followed Jesus at a distance into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. And while he's there, one of the servant girls of the high priest comes up to him and looking at him says, you, you were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But Peter, despite his many promises to the contrary, denies it, his first denial. He moves now to another spot in the high priest's palace and the rooster gives one crow. The servant girl sees him again and now she starts talking to the people around her. This guy is one of them. He's one of Jesus's followers. But again, Peter denies it his second denial. A little while passes and those standing around, they say to him again, you have got to be one of Jesus's guys because you're from Galilee. And now, not only does Peter deny that he's a follower of Jesus, but he begins to call down curses on himself and swear that he doesn't even know him, his third denial. And immediately the rooster crows for a second time. And Jesus' words on the Mount of Olives come rushing back to Peter like a blow to the chest. He was, excuse me, he was right. Jesus was right. Before the rooster crowed twice, Peter had denied his Lord three times. For all his talk and self-confidence, Peter is now reduced to weeping as he realizes how foolish he's been. So I wonder if you've ever come face to face with the truth of God's words. I know I have, and it hurts. Like Peter, we think we know better. We think we're more powerful, more resilient, more dominant over our sin than we really are. I know I'm supposed to guard my eyes, ears, heart, and mind, but all of my friends are watching this show, and it's, it's just a little bit of sex and nudity, but the plot line, it's really good, so I'm sure it's fine. I know God says we're supposed to save sex for marriage, but this is true love, so it'll be okay, and we're probably going to get married anyway. I know that the Bible says we're not supposed to gossip and that our tongues are a restless evil full of deadly poison, but you're not going to believe what I just heard about so-and-so. I just have to tell you. And then later when we're in the midst of a struggling thought life because of all the crude images that we've ingested, or we're in a difficult situation with the intimacy with our spouse because of our previous sexual sins, or we're lonely and isolated because we can't be trusted, we find that God was right, that he knew better, and that he warned us, and that if we had only listened, if we had only believed, we would have been saved from so much heartache. And if you're anything like me, you're reduced to tears. It's a humiliating and humbling place to find yourself. But in that place of bitter sorrow, I'm reminded of last year's verse from Hosea 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. And one of my favorites, Joel 2.25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. When we see our sins, when we recognize our folly in thinking that we knew better, and we return to the Lord in repentance and humility, he heals us. He binds us up. He restores the lost years. He does not leave us where we are, though he certainly will meet us there. No matter how badly you feel you've messed up tonight, no matter how deep your sorrow and shame over sins committed and errors made, God will meet you where you are. And then he will lift you up. Well, chapter 15 brings us to approximately 6 a.m. on Friday morning, and the chief priests hold a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. This was likely a consultation to officially sentence Jesus to death. It was required by Jewish law that the conviction hearing and the sentencing hearing be two separate events. And they were supposed to occur on two different days, but the Jewish leaders are clearly not concerned with conforming to the letter of the law here, which is ironic since the law was kind of their thing. After he is sentenced, they must take Jesus to a Roman ruler because while the Jewish leaders could sentence him to death, they could not themselves put him to death. Execution could only be carried out by the Romans. And Pilate was the Roman governor at this time. He happened to be in Jerusalem right now because it was the Passover. Remember how we talked about the meaning of Passover and the high expectations that the Jews had for yet another Passover salvation. The Romans knew this, and they also, so they always kept a strong presence in the city during the feast in order to make sure that the peace was kept. And so Pilate is there, and when they bring Jesus before him, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus responds. And the chief priests start hurling out accusations, and I imagine Pilate raising his hand to silence the accusers and then turning again to Jesus. Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But again, Jesus is silent, and Pilate is amazed at the man that is bound and bruised before him. And notice that the chief priests have changed their charge against Jesus. For the religious council, their primary offense was blasphemy. For this political council, the primary offense is Jesus' claim to be a king, a direct affront to the rule of Caesar, the Roman emperor. And in verse 6, Mark tells us that there was a tradition at every Passover feast for Pilate to release a prisoner to the crowd, something that was probably instituted by Pilate in order to gain favor with the people. So the crowd, they begin to ask for that to which they have become accustomed, and Pilate asks if they want him to release to them Jesus, the king of the Jews. Pilate has correctly perceived that the chief priests have only brought Jesus before him because they envied his popularity and influence over the people. But the chief priests are among the crowd now, and they're riling them up. They're inciting them to ask for Barabbas instead. Then what shall I do with this king of the Jews, Pilate asks. And the crowd that only a few days prior hailed him as Hosanna now shouts, crucify him. Taken aback, Pilate asks, why? What evil has he done? But the crowd shouts all the more, crucify him. So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, releases the murderer, robber, insurrectionist rebel, Barabbas, and he scourges Jesus, which means that he had him beaten with a multi-lashed whip that was embedded with bone and metal pieces, and this was a penalty that sometimes itself led to death, and after the scourging, he delivers the sinless one over to be crucified. The soldiers lead Jesus away from before Pilate, and they call together the whole battalion, which would have been about 600 men. And again, the clashing of kingdoms, as Jesus is surrounded by hundreds of men who exercise their power and their might over his willing submission. Playing off of his claim to be a king, the soldiers mockingly dress him in a purple cloak, the color of royalty, and they fashion a crown out of thorns to place on his head. And they salute him, and they say, Hail, King of the Jews! And they strike him, spit on him, and pretend to pay homage to him. And when they're done with their mockery, they take the robe off, they put his own clothes back on, and they lead him out to be crucified." And as they make their trek out of the city to Golgotha, which means place of the skull, the soldiers make a passerby named Siren of Cyrene carry Jesus' cross, likely because Jesus has no strength to carry the 30 to 40-pound cross on his own. They offer Jesus a concoction which would have had a mildly numbing effect, but Jesus refuses it. And it was 9 o'clock on Friday morning when they crucified him and they divide his garments among them, casting lots to see who would get what, fulfilling a prophecy from Psalm 22. And now, oh, now, crucifixion was not a death that was unfamiliar to the people of that day. It was very public and it was very painful, widely believed to be the worst form of execution. A nail would have been driven in near each of Jesus's wrists to hold his arms outstretched against the horizontal beam of the cross. And then his feet would have been placed, one on top of the other, and a nail driven through to the vertical beam behind them. It's largely believed that the victims of this style of execution usually died very slowly, either by shock or by asphyxiation, whichever overtook them first. And those crucified were put on display for all the passerbys to behold, and a sign on which was written the charge against the criminal would be placed above his head so that everyone who walked by would be warned, this is what happens when you commit treason or murder or steal like the men on either side of Jesus, or in Jesus's case, when you claim to be a king of the Jews." and everyone who passes by, which would have been many, many, many people on this day, as they travel into the city for the Passover, they mock him and they shake their heads at him. Ha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from there. And the chief priests and the scribes mock him amongst themselves, and they actually admit that Jesus did indeed save others. But they're thinking that this now dying man has been stripped of his power and he cannot save himself. And even those who are themselves hanging on crosses beside him join in the mockery, our precious savior, completely alone, suffering pain and mockery on the cross for our sin. Three hours after the nails are driven into his hands, darkness covers the whole land for three more hours from noon until three in the afternoon. A plague of darkness was the ninth plague the plague that preceded the death of all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Here too, this darkness comes just before death, but this time it's God's own firstborn who will die. And after three hours of darkness, around 3 p.m., Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the opening words of Psalm 22, and they're perplexing. How can Jesus, who is himself God, be forsaken by God? And yet, when you think about what Jesus is effectively doing in these agonizing hours, it makes a little bit more sense. He's not just hanging there on a wooden cross waiting to die. He is himself becoming sin, we read in 1 Corinthians 5. And he is himself becoming a curse, we read in Galatians 3. Why? For the sins of the world. Because this has been God's divine rescue plan from the foundation of the world. This is the very reason that Jesus came to earth in the first place. On that cross, he is taking upon himself the full weight of God's wrath for all sins, past, present, and future, because God wants to restore to us the fellowship that we once shared with him in the garden before sin entered the world. But God can't be in the presence of sin because he is perfectly holy. So as Jesus becomes sin for us, of course, his fellowship with the Father must be temporarily broken. It must be so. He endured broken fellowship with the Father to restore to us the perfect fellowship that we broke in the first place. And hearing his cry, some of those around think that he's calling Elijah because he's near death. So they run to get something for him to drink, perhaps to refresh him, possibly in an attempt to prolong his suffering. Others, however, don't want him to be refreshed. They want to see what's going to happen if Elijah's actually going to come. And it is at this moment that Jesus utters a final loud cry, probably the final cry of victory that we read in John's account of Jesus's death. It is finished. And he breathes his last. All that the father had given his son to do was finished in that moment. Jesus had now successfully borne the penalty sins. He had paid the debt that we could not. And now, with his suffering finished, with the task completed, the chasm between God and man has been bridged. And symbolizing this world-altering accomplishment, the curtain of the temple rips in half from top to bottom. Remember last week we talked about the significance of the temple curtain. There were actually two curtains that hung in the temple. There was an outer curtain and an inner curtain. But most commentators agreed that the curtain which tore here was the inner one. It was hung between the inner sanctuary and the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies was where the Lord's glory had symbolically dwelt with his people, his presence. And no one was ever allowed to go behind that curtain to be in the presence of the Lord or they would die. We read in Hebrews 9 that the high priest could enter once a year into the most holy place, but only under the covering of the shed blood of an animal, an animal on whom all of his sins and the people's sins had been symbolically laid before it was killed. And then if you go down to verses 11 to 12 in Hebrews 9, we read, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent— not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ took on the role of that sacrificial animal, taking all of our sins upon himself, and then when he was killed, he shed his blood to cover our sins. But his blood, his sacrifice, it's not only sufficient for one year. No, his blood is eternal. His sacrifice is eternal. And because of his obedience unto death, when we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We come under the covering of the blood of the eternal Lamb of God and we are passed over in the judgment. We gain access to the very presence of God through Jesus, who by his death tore the curtain that once separated us. Yes, we will all die a physical death, but we will never know the pain of separation from our Heavenly Father because Jesus bore the penalty for us. When is the last time that you really considered the weight of this truth in your life, the incredible love that Jesus has for you? the incredible suffering and isolation that Jesus endured for you, and the incredible privileges that you are now afforded as a child of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. How will you thank him tonight for the work that he has done on your behalf? Well, the Roman centurion who's standing at the foot of Jesus' cross facing him sees that he breathes his last not in despair and agony but with a loud cry of victory and he exclaims truly this man was the son of god and in these words in the penultimate chapter of mark we've reached a sort of climax in this gospel mark has been placing before his readers throughout this book the proofs and evidences of who jesus is And now, as the Roman centurion makes his own statement about Jesus's identity, we're faced with the question ourselves, the one that Jesus asked his disciples back in chapter eight. Never mind what everyone else says. Who do you say that I am? Do you have an answer to that question tonight? In verses 40 and 41, Mark tells us that there were women watching from a distance Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph, and Salome are among them, and these were women who had followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and they had come up with him to Jerusalem. Keep these women in mind for next week. Now, it's probably about four o'clock on Friday when these events begin. Mark tells us that it was the day before the Sabbath, which was also known as the day of preparation. Since Jewish law strictly forbade any work on the Sabbath, devout Jews spent their Fridays preparing everything that they would need for food and life on the Sabbath, ensuring that no work would need to be done. The Jewish Sabbath lasted from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, so time is running very short if Jesus's body is to be buried. A respected member of the council, The same council that had just sentenced Jesus to his death, named Joseph of Arimathea, approaches Pilate and requests to have Jesus' body. Mark also tells us that Joseph was himself looking for the kingdom of God. And John's gospel tells us in chapter 19 that Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus. Now, as time is running short, he steps out in courage, in an overt and loving act for his Lord. He may have been keeping it a secret until now, but that suddenly seems unimportant. Pilate is surprised to hear that Jesus has already died. It often took crucified criminals two days or more to die. But once he learns from the centurion that Jesus has indeed died, he grants Joseph's request. And Joseph brings a linen shroud, takes down Jesus' body, wraps his lifeless body in the shroud, and lays him in a rock tomb. He rolls a stone over the entrance, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, see where Jesus' body has been laid. And again, keep these women in mind. For this week, we're going to leave our Savior here, dead, buried, in the tomb. So make sure that you come back next week, because this is not the end of the story. But who is Jesus? He's a teacher, he's a defender of the faithful, he's the bread of life, the lamb of God. He's prayerful. He experienced great distress and trouble, but he still submits to the Father's will. He's the curtain terror, he's our eternal high priest, and he's the son of God. And tonight we're not going to look at the different responses to Jesus in this passage, I'm just going to leave you with the same question that Mark is asking. Who do you say that Jesus is? And more than that, what are you going to do about it? Let's pray. God, we're humbled reading this account of what you have done for us, of your great love for us. And so, God, I pray that we would go from here and that we would find a way to thank you. To thank you for your death on our behalf, for the suffering that you endured, so that we might have fellowship with the Father again. Bring us back next week so we can hear the end of the story and be with us as we go. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the homework for next week is the usual. Pray, annotate, read, answer the discussion questions. And our final study tool for this summer is to read commentary on this final chapter of Mark, chapter 16. After this slide, I'm going to have a slide that has my resources on it, and it lists the commentaries that I've used for most of this summer to help me learn and understand this gospel better. And the Dayton Women in the Word website also has a couple of recommended commentaries that are listed on the MARC resources page. So be sure to go check that out. And don't forget to watch the video about this new study tool. Now, commentary is typically the last tool that we want to use. So I would encourage you to not pull one out until you've completed your personal study just the same way that you have every week before now. And then use the commentary as just a little extra insight into what the text is saying and we'll see you guys next week